Okay, we're going to get started tonight. Um, be in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, most of you are probably already there. You got your hand out, you're ahead of the game. Um, we're going to continue with our more to the story. Uh, last week was pretty amazing. I thought one of, I think one of my favorite ones uh, was uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how uh, those three, and in the fire and their rescue, uh, was pointing to the rescue uh, that we would have in Christ. Uh, and truly amazing, uh, the depths of that. And, um, but tonight we're going to go closer to the front of the Bible, and we're going to pick up a story that we've probably all heard. We've heard of Cain and Abel. We know the story how Cain kills Abel. But like Christ himself told us that, that in Luke 24, that the books of Moses, the first five books, the prophets, the law, and the Psalms, all those are pointing to Christ. And, and this story is no different how this story of Cain and Abel points to Christ. And our objective is, as we always go through these, the two things we always want to accomplish are, we want to say at the end of this that the Bible is better than what we've made it, and there's more to the story. And here's what I've found, and maybe you all could agree, is that once you see the true depths of His Word, you, you realize that it is so much better than what we've made it. And um, that's the hope today. So we're going to be picking up in Genesis chapter 4. We'll read down a few verses here, and then we will just go through these and just show how Cain and Abel, primarily Abel, is pointing to Christ. However, Cain is pointing to us in our fallen state. So Pick up in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. It says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will your not countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know, famous line here, am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's where we'll stop at right now, but before we dive into this, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this opportunity together in the middle of the week, Lord, um, in a restaurant. We thank you for that. We, we thank you that uh, church is not defined just by the walls, God, but church is the people. And we thank you for this fellowship, and we thank you for this opportunity to open your word, Lord, and we, we pray that we've come with the right hearts. And Lord, we pray that our desire would to learn more about you and to understand your word more and more deeply than we ever have, Lord. And we can only do that through you and your spirit, Lord. We, your word tells us that we can't understand anything of the spiritual 
without the help of the Holy Spirit. So we ask for that help tonight, Lord. We ask that you would just illumine our eyes and our minds and, and just let us see things in the truth of your word. We, we ask these things in your name. And Lord, we know that if we know more about you, we will love you more. And I pray that tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's start here, and let's look at some of these similarities here. And as you're reading through, maybe some of them have stuck out. Maybe you could start to see some of them. But the first thing I want to make note of here is the first similarity that we see between Abel and Christ is found in verse 2, his occupation. What was he? He was a shepherd. He was a shepherd of the flocks. How many of these types and shadows have we seen that come to pass? When we talk about David... And David is one of the greatest types and shadows of Christ as, as he would be fulfilled all in Scripture, the Davidic covenant and, and how he would defeat uh, Goliath, which represents sin. We know that whole type and shadow. We know that from the, the lineage of David, one would rule. It would be Christ. David was a shepherd. We know that Moses, who would lead his people out of Egypt, which would represent Christ leading his people out of Egypt in slavery, Moses was a shepherd. We, we know that through the Bible that the shepherd role is so important. And, and make no mistake about it here, it's, it's no coincidence, it's no accident here that Abel is a shepherd, which is pointing to who? It's pointing to our good shepherd. The Bible speaks of Christ in three different ways in, in as far as shepherds go. He's the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. And, and we see that in, in different roles that he has in the Bible, but we know that he's the shepherd. And you all know my wife. You know her favorite chapter in the Bible. It's John chapter 10, which talks about the good shepherd. And, and what did the good shepherd do? We, we, we mentioned this at length on Sunday, but what did the good shepherd do? Why was the father pleased with the good shepherd? Because the shepherd came to what? Who did he come to lay his life down for? The sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. The very specific people that he's laying his life down for. The sheep. The shepherd is the one who protects the sheep, who guards the sheep. And all through John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. Not only does he lay down the life for the sheep, but then he guides the sheep. He directs the sheep. He, 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 he's the, the same shepherd that the Bible tells us that if he has one sheep that is missing, what does he do? He goes and tracks that sheep down. That sheep will never be permanently lost. It can't be permanently lost because the sheep is not looking back for the shepherd, but the shepherd is looking for the sheep. And when the sheep goes and sees that there's need, what does he do? He grabs the sheep, puts them on his shoulder, and then rejoices all the way home. It's the good shepherd. That's what he does. And, and really quickly, going back to the story of David, and, and it's so amazing how you see the depths of the Scripture become uh, just plain to the eye when you see the stories of the types and the shadows of the Bible. But do you remember when David is standing before the king and they're trying to get the armor on? It's not fitting, and they don't think he's a, a worthy warrior. And what was David's response? He says, listen, I was a shepherd of the flock. And the lion came, and I fought him off. Basically, what he's saying is that I'm a shepherd, and I would do anything to protect my sheep. And this lion that came, even if it cost me my life, I would lay it down for the sheep. That's what David's telling the king. 
foreshadowing Christ. That the good shepherd would lay his life down. Who's one of enemy number one? Who's the roaring lion that the Bible speaks about? It's Satan. And the good shepherd has done everything he can do, all that is necessary to not only pay the price for the sheep, lay his life down for the sheep, to rescue the sheep, but to make sure the sheep stay in the fold and are always safe. That's an amazing detail that's in this story, that he's a shepherd. We can't overlook that. He is a shepherd. That's important. But equally as important is the point that is spoken about Cain. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. What's important about that? We've got one who's a shepherd. We've got one who's working the ground. This is so important in this factor. When there was a uh, when original sin, uh, the first sin in the garden, and we know that, that everything went downhill after that, what happened in the garden? That, that God comes and he begins to place curses on different things, right? What did he place on the ground as a result of sin? He cursed the ground. And one of the first things that we see is that there's going to be thorns and thistles and all the things that aren't good. He cursed the ground. And now here comes Cain, a product of that original sin, born into sin like all of us, and now he's tilling the ground. The importance of that curse is seen in the cross. And we've mentioned this before, but think about this. One of the curses on the ground as a result of sin was thorns. What did Christ wear on the cross? A crown of what? A crown of thorns. That sign of the curse of sin was shaped in the form of a crown as the king of all kings is taking upon himself the curse. That's what Galatians says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those under the curse. Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a cross, but he became that curse so that we would not have to be cursed and we could be set free. And he said, everyone that it happened to, they would be able to cry, Abba, Father. So we see that Christ on the cross, wearing that crown of thorns, is representation of the curse that goes all the way back to Genesis. And now you hear Cain is till, tilling this ground, representing his life into original sin and, and his hopelessness on his own. This is what he's doing. He, he is tilling the ground. He's tilling the curse, and he's doing it by his own hands. So the, the shepherd and the tiller of the ground, they, they rise up off those verses as so important as the foundation of what we are going to build on. And they, they point to Christ, and they point to sin, and they point to the curse. Because they're that important. Everything is pointing to Christ. Then what does the shepherd do? Abel comes, and he presents an offering of worship to God. And what did he present? What would the shepherd present? He would present a lamb. Do you see what's already happened in this story? He's going to present a lamb. He presented the best that he had, and he presented it in faith, and he offered up this gift to God. It was a blood sacrifice. It was the, the blood. It was by faith that he would bring this. And it was accepted by God. But what did Cain bring? Don't miss this. This is so important. That he brought the work of his own hands. Abel 
brought the lamb and the blood sacrifice. And here comes Cain, working the ground, the cursing of the ground, and he's bringing the product of his own work. And what you've seen right there is the difference between grace and law. Just in those few verses. Have you ever tried to do that? Guilty as charged. When we look at this and we say, Cain, what are you doing? How in the world are you going to bring the product of the land and your brother is going to bring the best that he has, this lamb, and offer it as, as an offering to God of worship? What are you doing? This is what every single human being does that thinks they can earn their way to God through their own work. Tilling it with your own hand, working it by your own hand, bringing your own goodness, bringing your own righteousness, which the Bible says is filthy, and there's no righteousness at all. You're tilling it, you're working with your hands, and you come and you say, here, God, here's my offering to you. If you try to work your way to God, or you try to bring a, the offering of your works to God as your means of righteousness and justification, you won't get anywhere. Never have, never will. Do you see the beauty of this story already? The shepherd is bringing the lamb to be sacrificed. And the one who represents the other in Cain, the tiller of the ground that's cursed, is bringing the own works of his hand to present it before God. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that when we stand before God in Romans 3, uh, verses 19 through 21, or 19 through 20, it says these words. It says that no one will ever be justified by flesh. And I'll read it word for word instead of a paraphrase. How about that? Listen to what our righteousness is, our own works before God are. It says this in Romans 3, verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and the whole world may be accountable to him. I know I've said this before. Let me say this. Every time I read those verses, I have to just say it. Do you know what the response is before God when we see him in his glory and we see him in his majesty and we stand before him? Do you know what every human being's response has always been? Their mouths are closed. That's the proper response to Christ. And, and, and just a few examples here, going all the way back to Leviticus. If you remember Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, these were Aaron's sons. They went into the tabernacle and they were, authorized, they were bringing fire and unauthorized fire into the tabernacle of God which God clearly forbid. And in that moment, Aaron's two sons drop dead. They're just laying on the tabernacle floor because they've done one thing in, in disobedience to God. What's the mantra that we would most likely say if we were thinking about this? You know it. It's the call of all humanity. That's not fair. Would you say that? We look at this and we say, how could he do that? How could, how could God just drop two sons dead over this one small thing? Here is Aaron looking at his sons laying on the ground. Listen to how this story plays out. In Leviticus chapter 10, he says this. Verse 1, I'll read the story, just a few verses. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on them, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. 
and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Can you imagine seeing your two sons laying there? What would you say? Would you look to heaven and say, God, how could you? How dare you? That's not fair. You owe me better. Verse 3 says, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, Listen to this verse. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all people, I will be honored. What words those are of comfort as your sons are laying dead. But he says, listen, do you know who you are? That's one act of disobedience against God. That is your merit. That's the, that's the weight of sin before God without his righteousness and justification. That's what it's due. The wages of sin is death. And here Aaron is just told by Moses, God said, whoever comes to me, he'll be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And do you know what Aaron's response is in the last part of chat, or verse 3? So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Didn't say a word. What could he say before the holy God? What could we say? That all of us in our own righteousness and our own works, our mouths are closed before this holy God. This is what Cain was trying to do. This symbolically represents he was trying to work by his own hands to bring an offering and a sacrifice that God would be pleased with, and God was not. God is not pleased when we try to work and produce our own righteousness as the grounds of merit of justification. Now, are we supposed to live a holy life? Yes. Are we supposed to have works that, and produce fruit of repentance? Yes. If we love him, we're to keep his commands? Yes, yes, yes. But when we come and think that it's our own works that get us there, or it's our own works that keep us there, then we've got a problem. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's his work. What a story this is, that Cain is bringing this Worship to God. Let me say this also in note, that there is a worship that is acceptable to God. We don't get to make up what worship is. We don't get to say, well, this is the way that I think worship should be, and this is the way that I think worship should be, and this is the way that I... Do you know who determines what is proper and acceptable worship? God. You'll see that one was accepted and one wasn't. Not everything that we bring to God is pleasing to God. Not all of our worship that we bring is pleasing to God. He examines the motives as we talked about on Sunday. Is your worship centered around God or is it centered around ourselves? We've talked about this at length, but I believe that idolatry can be committed when we go into a church. You're like, what? Absolutely. Have you ever said this? I didn't get anything out of that service. None of the songs touched me today. I feel the same. Why did you go to church? For you? Or to worship God? Those were two worship leaders in the Old Testament, Leviticus 10, that would drop dead before God. He's holy, and we don't get it as, a, as the church worldwide, do we? We have no idea who God is. We have no idea. 
Cain's bringing this work of his hands. We see this also in the garden. I promise all the other points will keep, they'll, they'll speed up, I promise. But we see also this example in the garden, don't we? When Adam and Eve sin and, and they run and they hide and they try to clothe themselves, what are they doing? They're taking their own works in their own hands and they're sewing and they think they can do it. They're taking the, the product of the land, they're sewing it all together and they're trying to cover themselves from God. Didn't work. What had to happen? The first animal sacrifice was made in the garden. The blood was shed. And symbolically speaking, Christ covers them with this covering of this innocent animal, which would cover their sin and shame, which is pointing to Christ as well. The, 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 the shadowing of atonement is in the garden, and we see it also here in the story of Cain and Abel. One is working the ground, the curse, bringing it by his own hands, and it is not accepted by God. But one brings the, sh the shepherd brings the sheep. He lays down the life of that sheep. And that sacrifice is accepted and approved by God. We also see that as a result of this, that Abel was hated by his brother. Was there anybody hated more than Christ in the New Testament? He was hated. He was turned over by the envy of his brothers, the Jews. We see this in Matthew 27. They were envious of him. They were envious of what he said. And they handed him over instead of Barabbas. Says the, word, the word says that he came into his own. His own received him not. Just as his brother Cain hated Abel, most of his fellow Jews hated Christ out of envy in his claims. And we also see that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, it tells us that, that Abel was righteous. And Cain was evil. And we have labored this so much, working through the book of Romans and already into the start of 1 Peter, that we know that Christ is our righteousness. He is the righteousness. That's when at the baptism he says, I have to do this so that I can fulfill all righteousness. One of the greatest staples of the ministry of Christ on earth is, you know this, the act of obedience. He had to fulfill all righteousness. And this is what I told the students at Agape on last Wednesday is that, and we've, we've covered this point before, that if Christ doesn't come and he doesn't live a physical life on earth and he doesn't complete the full, full fulfillment of the law, if he doesn't live that sinless life, then he doesn't have the perfect, complete work of the law required to give to us. Now, we, I'm going to talk to these guys tomorrow. I'm going back to Agape. Fingers crossed it doesn't snow. I'm going to talk about the, to them to why he died but we also never can forget why he came. He also came to live. And every perfect thing that he did, everything that he did on his life here on earth for 33 and a half years, he was doing that so he could complete the full requirement of the law. Remember, that's the, that's the requirement to get to heaven. Perfection, righteousness, the whole law. And you and I can't do it. But every moment of his life of perfection, he fulfilled that whole certificate of the law and Romans 8 says that all those who are his, that faith, that certificate, that righteous requirement is given to us. He is righteousness. He became sin for us. Why? So we could become his righteousness. The Bible says Abel was righteous. Cain was evil. And we know that there was no one more righteous than Christ and the only way that we can enter heaven is by his righteousness. The righteousness that he gives 
in justification. Where he clothes us with his perfection. It's truly a remarkable work of grace and grace alone. But those are the details in the story that Abel was righteous. That's what 1 John 3, 12 says. I'll read it. It says, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Christ is righteous. And by our nature, we are not. By our nature, we are evil. By our nature, we are deserving of wrath. We also see some similarities here that how was Abel killed? It was my murder. And there was blood that was shed. And you see the similarities picking up the shepherd who came to bring the sacrifice, who was righteous, was killed. Was his death merited? Was his death warranted? Did he did anything to deserve death from his brother? No. And there's no one who's less deserving of death than the Son of God. Because the wages of sin is death. So why did he die? Well, because it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, like we've mentioned, he became sin. That's the imputation, that sin of his people would be transferred to him on the cross so that the righteousness of himself could be transferred to them. There's no one who deserved death less than Christ, but he took it on himself for his sheep. That's what the shepherd does. And then we go to the grave. And, you know, one of the things we talk about so often is how miraculous it is and how, how it's, it's, it was so impossible that, uh, that he rose from the grave. You know, the Bible tells a whole different story than it was completely impossible. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Acts, it says it was impossible for death to hold him. That grave didn't have a chance. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. He's sinless. But he took on our sin in that moment. And you know what happens in that moment of sin? We, I asked Zeke this question. It was his first one. A couple, I used to quiz Zeke a little bit. I need to get back into that. I'd send him a text every now and then, give him a quiz. Do you remember this question? We went over it. When was the only time where Jesus did not pray, Father, when he was praying to, to God? All throughout his prayers in the New Testament, it's Father. When he tells them to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he says, when you pray, pray like this, my Father. It's always Father. The time he did not pray, Father. You know where he was at? He was on the cross. When he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about that just for a moment. That the one time the Son of God didn't cry out, my God, my, or my Father, was the time he was hanging in our place. When the full merit of wrath was upon him. When he was taking the indignation and the fury and the wrath and the punishment for the sins of his people. In that moment, the Son of God says, my God, my God. It's that intense. It's that important. He was righteous. He did not deserve death. And you were not. And you did deserve it. You deserve wrath. I deserve wrath. The Bible says by nature we deserve wrath. But he did not. He was righteous. That's what the Bible says Abel was. He was murdered. 
Let me, let me just say this too. Um, why was he, why did all this stuff take place? Do you, it, do you think it was a coincidence that all these things just came to pass in Jerusalem on a certain day? No, 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 this was ordained before the foundation of the world. Let me read this to you really quickly. You remember what he tells Pilate when he's standing before Pilate? He says, Pilate, you have no power over me except for what is given to you from heaven. Listen to this. In Acts chapter 4, verse 25, the, the disciples, they're persecuted they are arrested, they're threatened, they re, they're released, they come back to the house with all the other uh, disciples, and they are starting to ask questions, and they quote a psalm. They quote Psalm 2 in verse 25 of Acts 4, and it says, Who by the holy servant through the mouth of your, our father David, your servant, said, he's quoting Psalm 2 right here, Why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Listen, here's why it happened. You ready? For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along, the, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Why did it happen? Because before the foundation of the world... It was ordained. That's why we read in 1 Peter on Sunday, it says that he was the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. He was foreknew. He was chosen before the foundation of the world to be the lamb that would be slain. And that death was brought about by means of wicked and evil people, but it was brought about by the ordination of God because he was coming to lay down his life for his sheep. That's what the shepherd was doing. What an amazing thought. Cain, Abel's sacrifice. Let's turn here to Hebrews 4, or 11, I'm sorry. We're going to be in Hebrews 11 for Abel here for a while. Because this sacrifice and this worship that Abel had brought was done in faith. He made the Hall of Faith chapter, the Hall of Fame chapter, Hebrews 11. In verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. You see, his sacrifice was to God in faith. But do you know that the sacrifice of the true lamb was also offered to God the Father. Listen to this language in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You see, Abel's sacrifice was to God, and it was pleasing to God. But there was not a greater sacrifice pleasing to the Father than the Good Shepherd, who by His sacrifice says it's a, a, a fragrant aroma. Where does that come from? 
Why are we talking about a fragrant aroma when we're talking about a sacrifice? It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And it goes all the way back to the tabernacle. And it goes all the way back to the temple. Because everything in the tabernacle and everything in the temple, starting with the gate, how many, how many entrances were in going into that tabernacle? There was just one. And it was very narrow compared to everything else. There was a narrow door to get into the temple and the tabernacle. And then you go to the, to, the, to the place where the sacrifice occurred, pointing to the death of Christ. You go to the basin there where you were washed and cleansed, cleansed and, and given the, the, the washing of regeneration. And then you see you go in a little farther and there's the first holy place. And, and then you see that there's a table of showbread. And that is the unleavened bread, which is the body of Christ that was sinless and perfect. And then you go to the other side and you see the, the lampstand, which represents he's the light of the world. And, and all that come to him won't be in darkness. He calls them out of darkness into light. And he's forever and ever the radiance of the glory. But there was also something right there. There, there, was, there was a table that was right in front before the veil of the temple. You see, the veil is the place that separated everything from the Holy of Holies. And only one person could go into that Holy of Holies once a year, and it was the great high priest or the high priest. <coughs> That's where the glory of God was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the sacrifice was to be made for atonement. But before that veil, before that you could get into the Holy of Holies, there was a table of incense. And you know what would come from that table of incense? It would be a sweet aroma that was constantly burning for God. And now you see this language here. He says that he was an offering for us as a sweet aroma. And you, if you just let your mind go back to the Old Testament and just think about that day, think about the, the, the animals being slaughtered and, and, and the stench that, there was, that was there, the, the carcasses being everywhere, the smoke going up outside of the holy place. But if you could just get into the holy place, you would smell the sweetest aroma you've ever smelled. That was constantly going up before God. And that table of incense and its aroma going up was pointed at something greater. The sweetest, most fragrant aroma that this world has ever smelled. The sacrifice of the Son of God. The sacrifice of the Lamb. There's a sweet aroma going up to the Father because He's pleased with that sacrifice. You could go into that tabernacle, you could smell it, and it would smell so good. But if you're a Christian, there's nothing sweeter. There's nothing that smells better. There's not a more life-giving life smell than the aroma of that sacrifice going up that day. This is what he's saying. The sacrifice was to God. That's why he says... Father loves me. Why? Because I lay my life down for the sheep. Abel brought this sacrifice. It was pleasing to God. There was, there was an offering brought to God. He was pleased. And this offering from the Son, the true, perfect lamb sacrifice, 
was given. We see this, that Abel brought the lamb, and the Christ was the perfect lamb sacrifice. We read about this uh, uh, Sunday. We just finished up with this text. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19 says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but, you were pr- but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We talked about that. What does the word redeem mean? The word means that you literally pay a price for something and you get something in return. It does not mean you pay a price for something and you may get it or it may work out. You don't pay the price to redeem something and purchase it and ransom it back and then you don't get that price. That's because he laid his life down for the sheep and all his sheep will come. It's definitive. It's li- it, it, is, it, it is intimate. It is a personal atonement. Christ completed what he meant to complete on the cross. That's why it says that we've been redeemed. We've been ransomed. The, the, the price has been paid for his children to be redeemed back to him. You paid for it. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians, it says, your body's not your own. You're bought with a price. He says he bought the church with his blood. And that's why he uttered those words on the cross. To tell us die. That means it's finished. But that also goes all the way back to antiquity when the person had a debt that needed to be, that was still outstanding. If the debt was ever paid, then they would take, they would take the bill, they would take it, and they would nail it to the door of the person who owed it, and they would write those words to tell us die. Paid in full. Your debt's been paid. Can you imagine having a debt that needed to be paid, opening your door and looking outside and being like, it's been paid? What would you do? Would you rejoice? Would you take that person out to eat if someone paid that price for you? Would you take them to Mackey's? I would. Something greater has happened you and if you're a Christian that the debt you couldn't pay you're like Cain you're out there in the you're out there in your own soil you're out there in your own field trying to do enough with your hands trying to earn enough righteousness trying to bring an offering of yourself and of your hands to God and your debt would never be paid but because a lamb came because a shepherd laid down his life because you've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Your debt's been paid. How beautiful the gospel is. How wonderful it is. And this story of Cain and Abel is pointing to that. We also see that Abel's blood sacrifice was better than Cain's. That's what the scripture tells us in Hebrews. And just like in the Old Testament, that there were animals sacrificed... They were types and shadows as well, pointing to Christ. But when Christ came, guess what? We didn't need those old animals anymore. We didn't need the physical animals. We didn't need the goats. We didn't need the lambs. We didn't need any of that stuff anymore because the one for all sacrificed of the true lamb was everything. That's it. The Bible tells us that's what the whole book of Hebrews is about, is the old covenant, the old laws, the old sacrifices. They're not 
They're not the fulfillment. They're pointing to the things that are coming. They're pointing to Christ. He's a better priest. He's a better, uh, he's a better sacrifice. Just as Abel's sacrifice and faith was better than Cain's, so is the working of the true Lamb of God versus the sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament. However, as we mentioned, Cain's offering was the work of his hands. And we've also, we, we kind of covered this at the start, that, that by no one's hands, by your own merit, by your own righteousness, will you ever be accepted into heaven. Never. Never for one time. Not once. It's impossible. Cain's was not accepted, but Abel's was coming in faith. And if we're not careful, we do this in our own Christian life, don't we? Let me ask you. We've asked this a thousand times, but let me just ask it again just in case your mind has been changed. Would anybody here say that you could ever do enough for Christ to say, welcome into heaven, you are righteous on your own? No. That's Cain. Work of your hands. Right? Okay. So now you're a Christian. What's the standard to get into heaven? Perfection. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 48, what does he say? He looks at him and says, here's what I'm telling you. Be perfect as the Father is also perfect. He says the righteous will enter the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says we have no righteousness. And in the moment of salvation, Christ covers us with his righteousness, justification. He declares us innocent before God. Have you loved the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind today? Me? If you're asking me, no. Has there ever been one day where you've actually loved the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind for 10 minutes? No. The Bible tells us that the first command is to what? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your heart, and your mind. Is that what he tells us to do? We don't do that. Have you ever thought that once you come to faith, that you could do enough things in the field so God wouldn't take it away? Let me tell you something. If I could lose my salvation, I'd be the first one to do it. For us to say that God would look at us and say, buddy, you've done enough. Listen, I've saved you all by grace. And you know what? All these people here could have lost it. They did. They really didn't know how to live. But you, oh, you did enough on your own. Then why am I in heaven? By grace or by me? I'm not going to look at the person in heaven standing beside me and say, how'd you get here? Well, you're never going to believe it. He saved me by grace. It was by faith and faith alone. But I did enough good to be here. How about you? You going to say that? I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say that I'm here by the grace of God alone. And those who are truly his, you know what they will do? They will be obedient to his word. Because it says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. You see, we look at this story of Cain and we say, what are you doing? How, what do you do? You know that's not going to work before God. You know that's not what he wants. What sacrifice does God want? 
You know this. Romans 12. In view of God's mercy, you're to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to Him. And His, that's your reasonable service of worship, to surrender your life to God, to bring it as a living sacrifice to God. That's what He says in the New Testament. He says we're kingdom of priests. Priests were ones who brought sacrifices, and the sacrifice that God wants is you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants your mind. He wants your vocation. He's got it all anyway. He wants you to surrender it back to Him. But those aren't the things that keep you a Christian. His sacrifice, Abel's sacrifice, was accepted to God. And Christ's sacrifice was accepted to God as proof by His resurrection. The, the resurrection validates His work. His sacrifice proved Him righteous. And we know that the Bible says that the Christ is righteous and he, he, he died the righteous for the unrighteous. And if you remember at the, at the foot of the cross when the, the centurion came, and what did he say to Jesus about Jesus? Truly, this was an innocent man. Truly, this is the Son of God. Truly, He is righteous, like He said. That sacrifice proved him righteous. And the fact that he was resurrected shows that God was pleased with his sacrifice. However, we come to the last point. In Hebrews 11, where we were just at, listen to this. Listen to the detail in this. says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. In Genesis 4, it goes back and it says that the blood of Abel says it's crying out to me from the ground. Abel's blood still speaks. The blood of innocent Abel speaks. But the blood of Christ. Oh, it's louder than Abel's blood. Can you hear it? The blood of Christ speaks today. It has spoken hundreds of years back. And it will continue to speak all through eternity. It's the blood of Jesus speaks better than Abel's on behalf of his sheep to those whom he's come and he's sprinkled with his blood. Really quickly. In 1 Peter, we talked about this. I'm just going to read it. I'm going to make a couple real quick references here. You've got to get the picture, though. 1 Peter starts out with this. This is Perry's favorite section of Scripture. He knows it, but I want to read it talking about the blood speaking, talking about the blood being sprinkled. Here's what it says. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens or exiles, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. How are they chosen? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ 
and be sprinkled with his blood. Now we're going to go back full circle to where we started at. Do you remember in the tabernacle there, right before the Holy of Holies, there was the altar of incense, and off of that came a sweet, fragrant aroma. But the Bible tells us that the sweet, fragrant aroma that it was pointing to was the sacrifice of the Lamb on the cross. There's nothing more sweet into the nose of the Father than the sacrifice of His Son. And it says that the blood of the shepherd and the blood of that high priest is sprinkled upon His people. I know we've talked about it, but let, let me just go into those details a little bit farther. Who was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies? It was the high priest. Again, the temple, the tabernacle, all the Bible tells us in Hebrews 10, all that was a lot, shadows pointing to the things to come. It's Christ. And the high priest would stand outside and he would take the two goats. In Leviticus 16, the story is painted clearly. One goat he would take and he would sacrifice. He would kill the goat. And he would take the blood of that goat and he would go into the holy place and then he would have to walk past the altar of incense and he was the only one once a year that could go behind that veil into the inner sanctum and could be face to face with the Ark of the Covenant where God's glory was. And what would he do with the blood? He would take the blood of that innocent animal and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest could do that. And the blood was the only thing separating the, the glory of God from the righteous requirement of the law because the Ten Commandments were in the, the base of that Ark of the Covenant. So the only thing that was separating God's perfection and His glory was a blood covering placed there by the high priest. And... When he would go in to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, do you know what it meant for those people there? Their sins were atoned for. Who's the only one that could atone for those sins? The high priest. All that is pointing to the great high priest. Who would not offer a goat... We know the other goat was the scapegoat. They would take, they would, the high priest would put his hands on the head of the, the other goat. They would confess their sins and that goat would be taken away. And that's where we get the term scapegoat as he was symbolically taking the sins away. That's what Christ did on the cross. He paid the price. The blood was shed. He atoned for the sin, but he also carried our sin away. That's the symbolic meaning of those two animals there. But he sprinkles the blood. Now, could the people on the outside, could they be go inside and sprinkle the blood? Couldn't do it, could they? They were dependent on one man. And if he doesn't go in, and he doesn't atone, then their sins are not atoned for. You're like, that's not fair, that's desperate. Now you get the picture. That's you and me. We're standing on the outside. Tilling our ground, aren't we? I got it. I'm tilling it. It's going to make it right. It never will. 
And you and I are standing on the outside in all of our hope, in all of our forgiveness, in, in the only hope we have to, to enter behind that veil and to, to be, have fellowship in the Holy of Holies with this God hinges on a high priest. This high priest that you see in the Old Testament, guess what? He would physically die. But the high priest that went into the inner court for you and me, he never dies. And that's why I have full assurance that he's justifying every believer because the Bible says in Hebrews 7.25 that he's the high priest and he intercedes for those who are his. And how long does he intercede? Forever. For as long as he lives. It says he's in the heavens and he says that he's able to save forever or completely. Not for a short period of time and then not. He's able to save forever. Those who come to him because he lives forever to intercede. That couples with Romans 8 that says what? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Who will separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Because our high priest, which is God, the Son of God, goes behind. The Bible says that his body was the veil. It was torn. Right after the altar of incense, the veil was torn. He went into the inner sanctum and shed his blood for the atonement of his people. And on the cross, the Bible says that because of what he did, that veil that separated the inner place, the Holy of Holies, was ripped. Because of the work of this high priest, I don't have to stand on the outside and have somebody intercede for me and say, hey, go tell God this. No, no, no. The Bible says now we have a high priest who we can approach boldly because now we have access to Yahweh. We have access to the Father through our high priest. And that same blood, that symbolic meaning that he was sprinkling on the mercy seat is what he's done for all of his people. The high priest sprinkled them with blood. The mercy seat. Do you remember the mercy seat? Shall we just remember the mercy seat? In the ark. I mean, I know you love this, so you won't, you won't mind me saying it really quickly. The ark of the covenant was built in such a way and if you remember, there was the base, in the base, there was Aaron's rod that budded, there was the Ten Commandments, and there was a, a jar of manna, and then there was a lid, and it was the mercy seat, that's where the blood would be applied, and then over the top of that, you all know this picture, was the angels and their wings touching. Indiana Jones, you, you've seen this. And in between that space is where that blood would be shed. But what's interesting is in Romans chapter 3, that same chapter we were saying that no one before the law is justified. Their mouths are closed. They stand condemned. If you read down a little farther, here's what it says. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, verse 23, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, the purchasing which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly, here it is, as a propitiation in blood through faith. So now you have this propitiation, that means Paying the, pay, the price, taking that suffering to appease the Father, it's the sacrifice that was pleasing to the Father in faith. But that word propitiation, which is what that first goat, the one that was, the one that was killed, that's what that meant. 
That word, speaking of Christ as a propitiation, is found in the Greek Septuagint in Exodus 25. And we find that same meaning referencing the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. So here's the picture. The Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, was pointing to Christ. Because in it was the manna, the bread from heaven. John 6 says what? Listen, Moses wasn't the one bringing that bread down, but I was. I'm the true bread from heaven. I'm the bread of life. Then there was a, 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 a rod there, a priestly rod. Who's the high priest? It's Christ. What about the Ten Commandments? That's his perfect law. All that is pointing to Christ. The high priest, who's the bread of life, who, who kept the law perfect, is all in the Ark of the Covenant, but then the angels come. And there's one on the end of each of the ark, the ends of the Ark of the Covenant, and they come up, and underneath that on the mercy seat is where the blood would be shed. Now the imagery that is seen in Romans is that Christ is that mercy seat. That Christ on the cross, as the blood is being shed, that is the mercy seat that is being referenced in the Old Testament where the blood would be applied to atone for the sin of the people. But it doesn't end there. Because if you remember, I think it's in John. Let me find it here. In John chapter 20. Remember, Christ is the mercy seat. Christ is the one who shed his blood. It, it is his work on the cross. In the Old Testament, the mercy seat is where the blood of the high priest was, what, what, the blood from the high priest of the animal was sprinkled. But then we have the story of Mary coming to the tomb. And Mary looks into the tomb, and you know what she sees. She's one angel at one end and one angel on the other end and who had been laying in between. The true mercy seat. Can you look into the tomb? Can you look into the grave of what Mary saw? The, the flat place where Christ was laying. And one angel on one end and one angel on the other where the true sacrifice and the true mercy seat of Christ had laid. That's the story of redemption. That's the story of how you were purchased by the blood of Christ. And that blood still speaks. It's the blood of Christ that buys your redemption. It's the blood of Christ that redeems you. It's the blood of Christ that atones for sin. It speaks from now all through eternity, and it never has an end. Yes, Abel's blood speaks, but not near to the magnitude of this shepherd. I wrote this down. Abel was a shepherd who offered a lamb sacrifice to God, which was accepted and pleasing to God, Abel's innocent blood, which poured into the ground, still speaks. However, Abel was a type and shadow pointing to Christ. He is the good shepherd and the lamb of God who was innocent and killed by envious and evil men. His sacrifice was pleasing to God and his blood still speaks now and will speak forever. We talked about the blood on Sunday. I'll say this as we close. 
We talked about all the gold. The Bible says we're not redeemed by silly things, perishable things like silver and gold. And we had made mention that Solomon in 1 Kings 10, if you translate all this out, he was receiving 666 talents of gold a year. Uh, and that, that equates out, if you were to put that in today's economy, uh, Solomon was getting a billion dollars of gold. Just, you know, one of his things he was getting. And then we brought in Fort Knox. They say that there's $6 billion worth of net gold there. Colorado has a couple billion. So does New York. We talked about all the gold that's ever been in this world. All, you, could, you could gather up every troy ounce of gold, every diamond, every precious stone, every precious, precious metal. You could bring them, and you could bring them all in one pile, and you could say, what can I buy? And you could buy pretty much anything in the world except for one thing. There's one thing you can't buy with that. You can't buy a soul. You can't redeem a soul. That takes something more precious, doesn't it? I think it's amazing how we're talking about the blood of Abel, and we just got through mentioning that on Sunday. What is the only thing that can redeem a soul? What's the only thing that could purchase a soul? The most precious thing that's ever been on this earth. The precious blood of Christ. Think about the weight of that. We mentioned it on Sunday. I love it, the thought of it, that you could take all the money in the world, all of it, and you couldn't buy a soul. You couldn't buy your salvation, but one drop of the precious blood of Christ, one drop of that blood sprinkled to the heart of his believer buys you redemption. You don't purchase your own salvation. It was purchased for you. By the glory of God and God alone. I hope you can see this again as we put our minds in closing back to Genesis 4. How many times have you read the story of Cain and Abel? Just like Adam and Eve when we were there just a few months ago, the depths of that. We can never look at Cain and Abel the same. It's the story. It's foreshadowing the redemption and the blood that would speak. It's shadowing the shepherd who would lay down his life. It's shadowing how if you try to work your way to heaven, if you're still under the curse, there's no acceptance by God there. We have to have true worship. We have to have proper worship. We have to reverence him as holy. And I think this story is shown. When you look at this story, let your mind go to the cross of the shepherd and the lamb and the crown of thorns because he took the curse and he redeemed us by his precious blood. I hope at the end of this story, you could say two things with me. I hope that you could see that the Bible is better than what we've made it and there's more to the story. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is so good. It's so deep. And we thank you for the spirit to open our eyes and our souls to it. Lord, we thank you tonight. Let us stop for a moment and think about you being the good shepherd. The good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep.
the good shepherd who leads us and guides us into all truth. And God, we thank you that you were the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that would have been pleasing to God, the Father. No one else was worthy. No one else perfect. But you were the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God. You fulfilled all righteousness, Lord, so that that righteous requirement could be met in me and anyone who would believe. We thank you for that. Let us think about the blood of Abel and how he didn't deserve to die by the hands of his brother. But Lord, you didn't deserve to die either. We did. But by mercy and grace, you came and you offered yourself as a, an aroma, a fragrance to the Father that would be accepted, that would redeem your sheep, and would be my only grounds of heaven. Your righteousness and your work on the cross. Lord, let us remember tonight that your blood spoke in the past. It was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It was recorded in the New Testament. It's applied to us today, and it will speak for all eternity. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, we thank you and praise you. Amen.